Let's do this. Let's oh, okay. make a podcast. Are we all recording? We're all recording. Let's make okay. the magic. Alrighty. It's magic time. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 94 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra and I am in, sitting in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by my co-host in Whitby, Ontario, Aaron Vay. Hi there. And we also have our co-host in Seattle, Washington, Jaime Lopez. How's it going? And down in San Jose, California, we have Mark Rubin. Hello. We have one question from the uh, Ask MTJC that... Um, oh, we did. Well, how nice. Yeah, Justin Stanley. He loves he loves just getting in there. I know. He loves just getting in there. Something about, does the OLED replacement bar for the function keys on the MacBook Pro sound useful? I have no idea what he's talking about. Really? So, is there a new MacBook Pro? No. no this is a rumor. Of course not. It's a rumor. Oh, okay. There, that, but, there are many yeah. rumors of many things, uh, but the OLED bar is the new one about the MacBook Pro. I think we even mentioned it last week i'm not sure about Did that i don't think so i don't think so this so this is a uh, question we got from ask mtjc from justin stanley so why don't you fill us in there aaron you want me to fill you in on the question or you want me oh, to provide the answer. an answer how about the answer okay uh does it sound interesting yes it does sound interesting because what it is is perhaps the first step i think for apple to go to a a much more customizable input method uh, for for its laptops and computers, who knows that it may come to a standalone keyboard as well. Mm. Um, so the idea, I think, anyway, from the reporting I've seen, is that it would allow Apple to customize the uh, iconography, the letters, or you know, the function keys or the icons that appear um, in that function bar strip, which we normally see, you know, F1 through F12, or the spotlight and mm-hmm. brightness keyboard play media buttons, etc. So, uh, you know, this would just provide a way, like the Optimus keyboard. Now, I'm, I'm feeling even more certain we've talked about this before. Okay. Um, the Optimus keyboard, which was a sort of semi-failed Kickstarter that came out, its idea being that every keycap was a little LCD display so that you could customize the keycaps. Oh, I see. Okay. So you could this make your This was years ago, keys. by the way. Right, right. Yeah, right. the idea being that you could have uh, specialty software uh you know, like a Photoshop or a Quark Express or even a game, uh, rewrite the keys to show the controls that are specific for that application. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what people have in mind when they're looking at what Apple's doing rumorly with the OLED strip. And OLED, of course, is just an organic light emitting diode. It's a, um, the same kind of display that Apple uses in its watch right now, uh, which... Um, the advantages of it are low power, uh, you know, high quality color, and um, uh, very deep blacks, I think. So you can have, uh, you know, if you look at your watch, you see that it is predominantly black and almost indistinguishable from the black of the surrounding face. Right. So it's very difficult to tell the display from the casing unless you shine a bright light directly on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why the OLED display makes a lot of sense, I think, for above the keyboard. Um, because it'll probably blend right in. So it would um, be like a, it would be like a single bar right across the width, full well, width. Well, I think that's what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, because then it could be used for many, many things. So, what were you going to say, Mark? Sorry, Sorry. I said I, I'm actually lukewarm on this one. It just the first thing I thought of when I heard of it was remember those cardboard uh, things that people used to stick on top of their keyboards <laughs> to tell them what all the keys meant. Yeah, those are the days. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. But but 
I, I kind of feel like it's that it's it's sort of going backwards in time when you had to memorize a whole bunch of keystrokes in order to use your software. It kind mm-hmm. of goes against the whole simple is better and and uh, intuitive uh, input to software concept. So I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll see. We'll see if it's if it's uh, useful for anything. But I don't know. And it could, of course, you know, be something entirely different. It could be a new interface paradigm. <laughs> Sure. I don't want to go crazy with this, but, uh, you know, it could be, say, some kind of uh, auxiliary display. Uh, if you recall, a few years ago, um, Windows PCs shipped with an external display of the on the laptop case. Mm-hmm. Ringing any bells? Uh, where uh, you wouldn't have to power on the computer, and there would be just this little display on the outside case where you <laughs> right. could see auxiliary information, like uh, your your email inbox, for example. Uh, time, power information, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, never really took off. But it was a feature that Windows provided uh, for a time, and knowing Microsoft probably still does, uh, just that nobody uses it anymore. But this right. might be something similar. Who knows? Again, I mean, that's the thing with rumors, right? It's that you you see uh, these pictures from the supply chain showing a spot where a display is going, and you can only speculate as to what Apple has in mind for it. Yep. That's why we're all excited about WWDC, right? Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I still wonder about how functional it could, well, without knowing what they're doing, but a question how functional it would be for for a lot of people. I, would, I for example, use my laptop with a, with a large external monitor, and I almost never look at the laptop screen when I'm using the monitor. And I use an external keyboard and an external trackpad. So, so the computer, the laptop is just kind of there, not really doing that much. Uh, in right. the way I use it, right. so so for me to actually look at that at that uh, OLED strip and have to tap it would mm. be really inconvenient. Now, obviously, not everybody works that way, but uh, but that's just me. All right. So, okay. well, I do have some follow up on our friend Martin Magni, but we had a Twitter conversation um, at short, shortly after we recorded our show last week, and I, as you remember, last week was my pick, Mechorama. Um and it was interesting. The interesting model for me was the fact that he was using the uh, pay what you want model. So I wanted to ask him some questions about that. So I sent him some questions and he kindly returned his answers via Twitter or through the Twitter message machine. So I'll just go through them. So I asked him, first of all, how he built the app. And we were speculating, well, I was speculating that he perhaps used Unity or uh, SceneKit or something like that. But he said, in fact, he wrote it from in from scratch in C and used an open source uh, bullet physics library for to do the mechanics. Hmm. Um, I asked him if he did the artwork and the music, and he said, yes, he's a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, so kudos to him for that. It's a really good-looking game, and sounds the, the music's good. Has anybody tried playing it at all? Or No. No? Okay. So I asked him what made him decide on the pay-what-you-want, and he said, you know, I wanted to try the in-app purchases, but locking the features down would hurt the game, he felt, so especially given its, creative, its create-and-share functionality, and I'll talk about that in a minute, too. Um, so he said that benefits from having many users contribute content. So the pay what you want solves the issues that seem to be relatively untried in the app store. So we'll see how he reports on that. So I told him we talk about developers and what, how they charge, they should charge real money for their apps and, you know, asked him how the in-app purchase was performing. Um, and he said, uh, he says, I charge exactly what, what you want, you think the app is worth by that model. So he says he doesn't, doesn't think you could get any more decent than that. Um, Oh, and pe- decent. Yeah, that's his terminology. That, that's for his it. term. What is? Uh, what do you think? That well, I means? mean, if you if you want to pay him nothing, you pay him nothing. If you think it's worth a couple of bucks, you pay him a couple of bucks. If you think it's worth thirty dollars US, you give him thirty dollars US. 
right? So it's what it's worth to you as the user. Yeah. You know, I I understood that. Uh, you yeah, know, okay. I understood the words that came out of your mouth. Um, <laughs> I just was curious about his application of the word decent to right. describe what he is doing. Well, I think um, he said he didn't want to hurt the game. He didn't want to hurt the gameplay for people, right? By by making by locking down features, you know, so they couldn't use the, the get the full benefit of the game, right? And like we said last week, it's a model nobody's tried, and we'll see how, see how he does. And I do have an answer for that. Um, so I asked, are people paying? He said, well, some are, and he thanks the people who have paid him. Um, and uh, is he making a minimum wage? No. Uh, these are his comments. And and will he survive? He says yes. And he says he's extremely fu- frugal. And as Jaime sort of extrapolated last week by where he lives and the uh, sort of somewhat our, our limited knowledge of the buying power of the Corona, uh, he seems to be able to do pretty well. Um, I asked him what made the game tip. Like, what was it that made it go to, you know, have such uh, good luck or good fortune? Um his answer was, would it be presumptuous of me to suggest the quality of the game played a role? Hmm. And uh, he said making it free certainly helped. And I can testify that when you, when you do make apps free, they do tend, to, you do tend to get a lot of downloads. How long did it take, I asked him, and, and did he work on it exclusively? And he said he's a full-time indie developer now. Um, he worked on it for 18 months, for a year and a half. And I said, how are your other apps doing? And do you have any? He says, his first game, which is the one we talked about last week as well, was his first sort of solo job. And that was the Oddbot out from 2015. Um, it's a pay-to-play model as opposed to the pay-what-you-want. And it's so far, it's done better than the Mechorama game in terms of, I guess, revenues, right? So and those are the answers he gave me to my questions. Any wow. comments? Those are great questions. Um, and I'm uh, pleased surprise that he was as forthcoming as he was uh oh, really was, okay yeah no kidding and hearing those answers just now for the first time along with our listeners mm-hmm. um i'll be a little flat-footed with my responses to those answers okay um as i'm thinking about it now so i guess the question that we had going into this uh does pay what you want Makes is, sense, is that yeah. a sensible way to generate revenue for an app Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is no, because From, of the per, because of the performance, or because yeah, because of what millions of downloads just are still yeah, presented. like yeah. so he's had a um, we started by saying it was a million downloads. Yeah, I right? think he had a million in one week. Actually, yeah, yeah, a million in one week. Yeah, I believe that was the story from last week. Yeah. Okay, so it's been many millions of downloads. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, well, that's even worse than well, <laughs> I mean, I'd say. <laughs> Uh, and he's, he, so he has had many millions of downloads, and it would only be a fraction of, of a percent who felt that they would be in a position to send him some money. Yeah. And so the money that he's received, less than minimum wage. No, uh, uh, we, that he, was, no, he said, no. So he said, he asked, he responded saying, am I making a minimum wage? And he said, no. So, right. So he's making good, some Oh, I'm sorry. Money. My, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I understood from that to be that he was making less than minimum wage. Yeah, no, I think it's translated from the original Swedish, and uh, that's uh, how it came out. Yeah. Sorry. Are you, no, are no, you he's... Sh- <laughs> are you sure? Yeah, I'll read you exactly what he said. He said, okay, um, am I making minimum wage? Question mark. No. Will I survive? Yes. I'm well, extremely frugal, is what he said. Yeah. So I, what I take from that is he's making less than minimum wage. Oh, you think? Yeah. Oh. That's exactly hmm. what I think he's saying. Uh, yeah, that's Mark, how I'd interpret it as well. I really? can't really yeah. understand how it would be interpreted any differently unless there was a serious amount of context to that, that the way that was done. <laughs> Cause like, 
minimum wage is presumably uh not to get into politics here but it's presumably <laughs> like this is the minimum you need to like survive with some decent you know standard of living um, sure so when i hear you know i'm not making minimum wage it's like well then you're making less given the fact that you said um oh i see what you're saying but, yeah, but i'll right. find a way to survive i right. i'm just an optimist what can i say you know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i just uh i don't think that uh he's making much there at all no and so. i get that impression he's not making as much as he was with the other app as well which seems to be more successful right and so. that's the that's the adjunct to my point is that yeah. the um pay what you want versus here's the price pay it or don't mm-hmm. play mm-hmm. uh it appears that you know the the latter is the more successful revenue model right um and so being quote decent unquote has put the app in the hands of a lot of people a lot right. of people Mm-hmm. But uh, at what cost to him? You know, obviously he's getting to make games that he loves to do. He must love this or he wouldn't be doing it. Right, right. Um, and um, on the other hand, he may not be able to do it forever because he's not making enough money to get by. Sure, sure. Now, the other the other piece of it was Jaime commented on the fact that uh, he noticed that in the, I guess, in the description that there was sort of a QR code. Each card that you play, each as you play each level, it's a card and it shows you the picture of a preview of the level you're going to play. Um, but he's also got this Mechorama forum where users can contribute their own their own um, uh, levels. And um, I wouldn't, I don't know. So you can see in the link, I put the link in the show notes there to this forum site where users are creating their own levels. And some of them look pretty complex and pretty interesting. Um, so I think he's trying to create a community around this game as well, right? So, and that may be part of the long tail plan, you know, to create this community around the, around the app and have it, uh, have people contribute. So, yeah. So there. Yeah. So, cause, <laughs> cause, cause he's got this level building, you know, functionality so people could share their, share their, uh, their levels and make a community of it. Right. Absolutely. Um, so that's good. And, and a lot of companies, let's, let's be honest. A lot of companies have made a lot of money, uh, long-term over forgetting about making money short-term and just build users. Yeah. Uh, for example, Twitter, right? <laughs> uh, Twitter makes oh, yeah. no money, but they've got a lot of users and, and they hope at some point to make a lot of money. Right. Not clear that they will, but they might. Right. And and so a lot of companies have done that. And Facebook did that, right? Facebook sure, of course, yes. Facebook made no money for a long time until until they reach a certain critical mass and this, then they started making money. So so yeah, so if he can get a couple of million people using this regularly, uh you, you know what comes to mind actually just because of the similarity of, of the game is Minecraft. Right. Right. They have there's a huge community of, of kids uh who just love this game and just build their things and share their their uh, their creations. I, I don't know who or how anyone makes money off that, but I, but I presume somebody does. Well, Minecraft uh, charged for the app. They, when they it was the do. app, but but yeah. when it was, it started on the desktop, right? I mean, it's been around right. for a long time. Yeah, yeah, but you paid for the app on the desktop, and you Did also you? Okay. paid. For, okay, oh, yeah. okay, like okay. Were, then maybe yeah. that's not the best case. But I was I was just thinking of the community that they've built. They've got enormous number of people who are just completely fanatical about this game. So, so if he can get the same kind of enthusiasm and get a few million people very enthusiastic about, about his app, he will make money at some point. There's no Somehow, doubt. yeah. yeah. Uh, but the difference between like uh, this fellow, Martin, and the companies that you cited is that they've all got VC capital um, 
VC capital, listen to me. Uh, they've all got venture capital and, you know, a way to sustain themselves while they are busy not making money and generating users. And this, this for, poor e- fellow. Even even better for him if he can pull it off then. Absolutely. Because he's not beholden to, to VC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. That is absolutely right. true. Right. Um, yeah, just, uh, yeah, I don't know, like, if he has an end game, then fantastic. Uh, I would, if I were him, I'd be wanting to get to work on that, I guess. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it, it's hard to argue with someone who's put together millions of users, you know. Um, but it's, it's unfortunate, it seems, that it doesn't come with uh, any kind of significant revenue. No, and, and I mean that. That's the, the for me personally. That's the sort of scary thing about making things as close to free as possible, if not free, is that you end up getting you end up getting a lot of people who you know do they do they actually play the game long term? You know, would would they have downloaded if it wasn't if it wasn't uh, a charge for what you play kind of game anyway? Right. So yeah. I think uh, um, there have been success very many successful apps that are you know two or three dollars, which we still argue is too low. You know, but uh, it seems sure. worth talking about anymore. <laughs> no, I know, and uh, and and I thought there was a trend towards people charging more money, but this this tip jar concept, and, and we'll talk about that a bit in, in a minute with your other uh, link there, Aaron. So there's a couple games that come to mind that, uh, granted, they're not independent developers, um, but sort of looking at this, like what what could this person do? And we've talked about League of Legends before, the massive online battle arena where. It is a free game, like completely, utterly free. There's not like any trick to it, but mm-hmm. you pay for customizations that are you know non-gameplay impacting, right? So you know you let's say this person builds up this huge community of like people doing things with with Mechorama, and then hey, guess what? We got a new in-app purchase. You can put a top hat on this thing, right? Just like just completely dumb. It doesn't change the, the gameplay in any way, but people are like yeah. My guy's got a top hat and a monocle. What is your guy? <laughs> oh, my guy's got like a wizard hat and a beard and, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and we saw that Crossy Road did this really well, right? Where it gave you a lot out of the box for free, but gave you a lot of freebies too. And a lot of freebies that um, they, they actually changed the gameplay. So it's not a perfect analogy, but it didn't make it like easier, right? It, it actually changed the experience in some meaningful way. The, the other game that comes to mind is Mario Maker for the Nintendo Wii U where they have this whole community of people, you know, making levels and people have built this whole community around it. And there's uh, YouTube let's players that do videos of, of, you know, whatever random games coming out or uh, whatever. Uh, they, like some people actually run promotions like, Hey, we've, we've got this theme, submit your theme to level and we'll, we'll show it on the, or we'll play it on the show. And uh, of course, Nintendo is in a position where it can make merchandising that's related to it. Right. So they have the, your, uh, their amiibo, products the little nfc like statue figures that you can hook into the game it shows up as digital content in the game when you purchase the product and i can see this at some lower level here right obviously he's not going to make all this merchandise but if you had a oh uh, chip in some money here and we'll send you a 3d printed version of your little customized guy or hey uh, because some of these levels actually look real interesting what Mm -hmm. if you could have them like 3d print or take a cut out of some you know manufacturer 3d printer that does like you know, we make a copy of your level. You can have a physical copy of your level that you can look at and put at your desk. Sure. I just actually saw a tweet today that uh, Monument Valley has uh, is thinking of doing a Lego set. So they're they're you know because Lego has that thing where you can make up your your own design and then get people sort of sort of a crowdfunding sort of thing to get them to vote on whether they would buy it. That's how I I have the the uh, the uh, Big Bang Theory set myself, right? 
Um, so maybe that's something that could happen with this this game eventually once it once it builds and gets you know more community or more users you know, t-shirts and you know mm-hmm. stuffed Angry Birds and uh, isn't there an Angry Birds movie out now? Speaking of which, wasn't well, Angry Birds is... free at first? I don't think I don't so. Know. No, I'm yeah. pretty sure that was a paid app. How is okay. Monument Valley going to make Legos out of some of those uh, non-physically not, realistic situations? They're not. That'll I, be yeah, pretty interesting I, to watch. Yeah. So yeah. Be, <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, there are some physical uh, optical illusions that have been created over the years. But yeah, you're yeah. right. It is a very much a 2D sort of twist with or play with perspective kind of game, right? Well, it's sort of that uh, Dali esque kind of drawings, right? Escher, yeah, yeah. Escher, yep. Escher. Sorry, yeah, mix them up. Yeah. 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 Yep. So it well, seems like games are like their own thing, right? Yeah. You know, like it's kind of a rush maybe to build a whack of users and then build a community around it and monetize it somehow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or or sell out to another company. And actually, Tim, didn't you mention this last week that Martin Magny was bought out by? Yeah, he had a Linden Labs Block Worlds. I think he may have been uh, in cahoots with them, or worked for them, or or something. But yeah, they they bought his game out from him. Right, yeah. and so he went to work for Linden Labs for a while, and they they're the makers of Second Life. Are they? I believe so. Really? Which was a very successful at its time, anyway. Sort of a massively multiplayer... It's still around, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, apparently, because I'm looking at it right now. And yes, it's Linden Research Inc., it's called now. But it used to be Mm. called Linden Labs. Uh, And so he was working with them for a while, and then he went on his own, is what you were saying last week. So it could be that he's got it in his mind to have this rather hot property um, and be an acquisition target again. Mm Mm-hmm. Just thought, sure. yeah, you know, and I think that's that's a legit business plan, especially if he's done it before. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Martin yeah, pe- Magny, people will pay a lot for a, for a million users for sure. Yeah, or how about ten million? Yeah. Even they'll pay even more. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I'm done criticizing. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, more FU. We've got more um, an update to Twitterific this week. The uh, iOS. Twitter client, I believe they are referring to because they don't seem to develop the Mac version anymore. Boo, hiss, etc., etc. Um, so, in this blog post on the Icon Factory, Ged Mayhew, um, who is the designer at Icon Factory and one of the prime movers on the Twitterific project, has written about their new tip jar, which sort of um, I've got it here under follow up because we talked earlier about Overcast implementing a Oh, what did he call that feature anyway? What was the name of it? A patron or something like that? A patron. Thank you, Tim. Yes. Um, a way to become a patron of the app, which is a way to say, you know, I'm going to give you X dollars. I think it was always $1 a month. And that is the only revenue mechanism for Overcast. And uh, it ruffled a few feathers at the time because Marco, when he announced that feature, said that, you know, this is a great new way for developers to make money you know like i can do it anybody can do it which is of course demonstrably false so i think in in the the months that followed um that that feature being added to overcast uh which also included notably a a little label that gave you a sense of how many other people were were using that feature um the numbers were going down quite steadily so it it appears and it's gone altogether nowadays um it appears that um, that model doesn't really work too well for making money. And so now that uh, Twitterific has implemented it, um, I don't think it's an offensive thing at all, because like, it's, not, it's not 
being positioned as, you know, this is the only way we have to make money. And, you know, because Marco can do it, we can do it. Um, we're taking advantage of our, of our uh, historical success as as an app developer uh it's not like that at all um basically what they're saying is you know ever since we've started selling twitterific uh we've updated it like 40 times we've we've posted 40 over 40 t- uh, updates to this application which have all been free mm-hmm. um and so when they decided uh you know should we stop development on twitterific version 5 the current version and then go to an all new version 6 um, and this all, of course, is thanks to the way Apple's um, system works, that you can't, um, you can't charge again for another model, uh, another version of the software. Um, you would have to actually literally go and create a new app and then charge separately for that and hope that all your users come along for the ride. You know, and by the way, real-time update, I was wrong about uh, Overcast's uh, patron notification. Apparently, 579 people have became patrons this week. Wow. Yes. So Marco made $580 this week so far. <laughs> so here's a thought. Here's a thought. Now, we know that we've talked about Phil Scheller um, going in and, and having a new mandate to to look at, examine examine the App Store. And I believe it was maybe from the developer's perspective. Do you think that Apple may have finally come to the realization that not being able to charge for updates is, is unrealistic? No, I don't think so. And I don't think there's any sign in that at all. Uh, you know, unless unless they actually do something differently, come say WWDC. That's what I mean. Maybe there may, maybe Eddie will come uh, out and do a dance and maybe. tell us some stuff about it, right? Well, it wouldn't be Eddie; it would be Phil, right? Yeah, Eddie, Eddie's gone from the App Store. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I like, I would be surprised. I don't I don't see any sign of that coming. If they did, wonderful. But uh, that's the motivation here when t- Twitterific is looking to implement this tip jar. I think they're kind of balancing um, sort of two potential evils right the first is we're not making enough money anymore like twitterific right. 5 has been out for a long time we've shipped just like i said 40 over 40 updates to it we've done a lot of development on it we've improved it dramatically since the first version 5 um but um what we don't want to do is lose all of these users that we've acquired over the time and we would if we went to a version 6 and charged like say i don't know like can't remember if it's uh like maybe ten dollars whatever it is Mm -hmm. um to ship a new version and then have to get all those users of version five bumped up to version six which of course would never happen right you'd lose like a significant percentage of them you just would Mm -hmm. and of course there's always the you know moaning and you know yeah the one star people complaining and and all that yeah exactly like you know the same old, same old, right? And so they yep. don't want to. They don't want to create that sort of bad vibe for themselves out there. And so um, I think what they're thinking to themselves is let's let's give them a way to pay us and allow us to continue development on this version without creating all kinds of you know bad ill will out there. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, what this is is an experiment, and they're going to ride it out for a while. And if it works and they, they get enough revenue to continue, then they'll they'll keep on doing this. But if, say, 6 to 12 months from now, you see version 6 of Twitterific, then you'll know that that probably didn't work out. Right. Now, do you use Twitterific on your phones currently? Actually, I'm, a, I'm TweetBot all the way here. Oh, right TweetBot. Now. Sorry. sorry. I, I think Twitterific is a wonderful app, um, especially on iOS. It's terrific. Um, but uh, I want to stay in sync 
with the Mac version of right. whatever Twitter app I use because of this of the uh, the marking right where yeah, where the yeah. timeline is kept. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Tweetbot has iCloud Sync, which doesn't it's not terribly reliable, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at least it's there and it it kind of mostly works. And Twitterific right. on the Mac has not been updated in years, many years right. now. Hmm. alas um the first it was the greatest but uh tweetbot has superseded it so um this is another one of those time will tell things about um you know giving users something you know and and it should be noted it's not the same as overcast because twitterific is not free you can try it for free but i think you have to buy it at least at a certain point uh to at least fully unlock it it's been mm-hmm. so long, right? You know, and I'm I'm exactly one of their customers in that sense. Of course, I've bought Twitterific. I bought Twitterific five ages ago, right? Right. But you know, like Overcast is, you know, it's always free, and you only pay if you want to pay. Whereas Twitterific is, you know, you're going to pay, but now would you like to pay again? <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how things turn out. So I'm I'm surprised that you find that less offensive than the than the Overcast model. Well, I feel I feel their pain, you know. Sure. Uh, but <laughs> but you know why ch- charging twice has always been considered kind of a no-no in the app store right if you were going to at least back in the old days if you it was always if you if you're going to use an app purchase as your revenue model then you made the app free you used a freemium model or you did a pay to play and and you you generally didn't use in app purchase except for maybe certain you know enhancements but weren't really necessary to use the app so so I actually think this is fine what they're doing, but I'm just surprised, given your history, uh, that you think that this is less offensive. Yeah, I, it's less offensive, I think, because of the positioning. You know, I the thing that offended me about Overcast wasn't that he was doing it at all. It was the uh, it was the messaging to developers that I can do this, therefore you can do this, mm. and that that is just flat out wrong to my mind. So that's what offended me about that. Mm. And I don't, I don't just don't believe that's true. Like he's basically saying, Hey, look, new, new and interesting business model that I created with my own mind. And <laughs> you know, you guys, you, you guys should be able to do that too. Like Mr. Nobody, Aaron Vay coming out with whatever app you happen to come out with, you know, don't just give it away for free and, uh, ask users to pay a buck a month and you'll be rolling in it. Like I am. Well, would, would you rather he have come out and said, ha, huh, I can do this and you can't, you suck. Well, yeah, actually, I would have. You, you would have preferred that? Well, okay. Yeah, I totally right. would have preferred all right. that. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'd all had a good laugh then, don't you? <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, Marco. <laughs> yeah. That's Okay, so that's me. <laughs> all right. But I'm a weird duck. You are. You are. I, it, I think that concludes the FU portion with with a with a true final FU. Make your plans now to come to Nashville, Tennessee, and attend the best tech conference being held this year. Indie DevStock isn't just about learning the latest Apple frameworks or how to program in Swift. Indie DevStock is about making connections. Our speakers will share their stories, experiences, and ideas with you. Through their words, you'll gain a better understanding of the challenges indies face, and more importantly, how to overcome them. It doesn't matter if you're currently a successful indie developer, just starting out, or trying to decide if going indie is right for you. 
We're all in this together. In addition to the inspiration talks, you'll also have an opportunity to attend hands-on tech talks to help level up your skills. During this two-day event, not only will you get to experience Southern hospitality at its finest, but you'll also get to hear some of the best live music around while enjoying all Nashville has to offer. For more information and to buy your ticket, go to www.indiedevstock.com. We hope to see you there. Do you want to talk about Apple Pay? We, we had a big release today. Sure. Um, is there anything that uh, I could say a couple things about it, but they aren't terribly positive? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but this might be the equivalent of talking about local cellular data providers, um, you know, of, of only local interest. Um, Perhaps. I don't know. I mean, I was thinking about that today, too, because, you know, obviously there have been some issues in the rollout in, 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 among all the banks, really. Um, and there's different policies. I have a Royal Bank account, so I tried it a couple of weeks ago when when uh, um, that one came out. And then I also tried to, and I, and I mean, just, you know, setting up the card. I haven't actually used Apple Pay to buy anything yet. Um, and then, of course, TDs rolled out this morning or last night, yesterday. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so and you had a couple of experiences with it. Would you like to relay those to us? Uh, they just didn't work, basically. Um, yeah. Scotiabank was one of the banks that came out with it, and I have I do yeah. all my business banking with them. So I've got a debit card and a credit card, right. a Visa card with them, uh, and neither of them worked. And the the messaging I got back from it was, uh, we we just don't support this card. So are, um, so can I sorry inter- interrupt you? But are you the only signing person on the on the account? Yes. Okay. And uh, I, I complained on Twitter, and Scotiabank got in touch with me, and then confirmed that they don't support a business visa, right? Right. So, or any business cards at all. They are only supporting consumer accounts at this point. Hmm. Uh, I asked if they were planning to support business, and they said we aren't announcing anything, uh, as you could expect, right? Right. Uh, a funny thing happened when I tried to scan my debit card, um, which kind of made me a little worried the way it played out um you know how you you set up a new card by getting the camera on and pointing mm-hmm. it at the card and it reads the numbers off the thing i pointed it at my debit card which you know has a a, a unique you know set of digits on it sure, that yeah. are not like a credit card at all right and it did the identifying thing but the numbers that it displayed on this on the photograph were totally different than the ones on the card itself wow that's weird that was weird. And then it goes to the next screen, and on a credit card, it's supposed to ask you for the expiry and the security code. Right. Or at least in the case of my other card, it did. Um, and it, it did that as well for my debit card. It said, okay, here's... You had to put what? I had to put a, a, the, the secret code on the back of the card on my debit card as well. But how? But there's no expiry on a card. Mine, on a mine has card. an expiry. That may be Your part of the Your debit issue. card has an expiry? It does, yeah. Yep. Okay, mine doesn't. And I've never... I've got debit cards with another bank, and it does not. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Uh, it's, I just thought it was weird. And when I got to that stage, I was like, you know, obviously, I, I cannot do this. <laughs> um, and so, no, I struck out on two cards there. Um, right, and then, of right. course, my personal banking is with PC Financial, which is a... Small independent, small <sighs> independent right? Yeah, very small independent bank. But their, their banking apparatus is performed by CIBC which right. was day one on this uh, rollout a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. but um, it does not work. And so I only have this one CIBC Visa card that I don't use for anything, and that's the only <laughs> thing I have in Apple Pay, and I'm, I'm really pissed off about it. 
Nice. Well, the other thing that I found odd about it is that, uh, as you may recall from past shows, I'm one of the, I'm one of the people that have, and I think Marcus as well, uh, people that have a, a different iCloud Apple ID than I do with my iTunes Apple ID. So I do all of my purchases and you know, music and apps and all that kind of stuff through through my my one Apple ID and my, my iCloud account was my old uh, mobile me account right I think Mac Mac.com account back in the day um, and Apple never wanted to, never would never merge the two together for some for some reason um, and I was surprised to find that when I registered for Apple Pay it insisted on using the iCloud account not my the one that I use for purchasing everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what? Well, I tell you, like, um, that whole uh, legacy system on Apple ID or, or .Mac or iTools, yeah. right, yeah. if yeah. you went back that far, cause as, as mine does, um, yeah. that's actually, nowadays, that's my developer account. Um, okay, yeah. And I had to bite the bullet some time ago, and I think everybody who is on that old system will have to do this at some point. Right. Bite the bullet and get yourself a nice, new, modern Apple ID. Um, and make those problems go away. I guess, I guess, yeah. But like, like I said, for me, it's, uh, it's uh, and I suppose it's not, not a big deal. But it's, it's all my iCloud stuff is, is like all my iCloud syncing and all that kind of stuff is on that ID as well, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. No, it's should... there's, there's no question. There's pain coming in your life. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I just hope I don't outlive this situation. Well, okay. <laughs> or sorry, this situation doesn't outlive me. I That's say. what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Good thing you could read my backward mind. Right. Well, so, sometimes. So I'm glad to report that Apple Pay seems to be going pretty strongly here in the sure. U.S. And uh, in fact, they just rolled out my bank at least just rolled out a new feature. That's that's pretty pretty great. I think uh, it actually solves a a real problem that that we've had at least in this area where people have been uh, hacking ATMs essentially by putting physical hardware in front of right. The, yeah, the, sneaky. The, card slot yeah and so they can read your card and then they usually are watching you somehow with the zoom or something to get your your pin code and then they can break into your account well now uh my bank has rolled out a uh touchless uh transaction where you can just wave your phone by this pad that's mm. right there on the atm so you don't use a card at all you just kind of wave it by this pad and if you have apple pay set up with that card your bank card it will let you into the ATM and give you cash. Which nice. Is Can you say how much you want and that kind of stuff on the app, as it were? Or? No, no, not with the app. This just, just, this oh, just, just authenticates you in. You, right? Yeah, and then just you use the ATM in the normal way, and you get your cash right. in the normal way. But uh, this is instead of putting your card in and typing your PIN number. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You must have did a little Snoopy dance there. <laughs> <laughs> I know I would have. Maybe so. Yeah, and I know today that we can use the uh, Apple Pay here in Canada to, to sync with our uh, Starbucks account, which is what you had said you were able to do yep. in the States as well. Yep. Now, yep. I, I do remember when we talked about Apple Pay with you guys that th- I guess maybe it was just the merchandisers that were slow to roll out with Apple Pay or initially. Like I remember there was a story about Whole Foods not working or something like that. Or Yeah, I mean, there were some growing pains right at the beginning, uh, and I don't know what the details were, but... but uh, yeah, there were a few places that reported stuff not working. In fact, there's there's a there's a uh, a sandwich shop nearby where I live that was one of the first places to have it. And of course, I went in when it first came out and tried it there, and and it just didn't work the first couple of times. Uh, but they figured it out. Now it works great every time. I know. How what's the retailer adoption for Apple Pay like in the states? It's well, at least in in my area, it's not as great as I'd like it to be. 
uh, mm-hmm. I'd like it to be taken everywhere, right? right. Uh, I, I would love to be able to not carry a credit card around with me anymore and just carry right. it because I have my I have to have my phone. So if I don't also have to have the card, that would that would be great. But it's not there yet. It's not there yet. But but there's new places popping up all the time. So so that's good. It's positive. Hmm. Nope. Mm-hmm. That is cool. I, I look forward to that. And you know, this is going to get better over time, right? Like day one, it's it's great that it works for people at all. <laughs> um, but this will roll out to all the other banks. Um, and we're not as worried here in Canada, at least, about the m- merchandisers because they've they've all got the hardware. Yes, that's true. Many of them do. That's true. Yeah. So I've seen the Apple Pay icon on on registers for for months now. So I knew. You know, well, we knew it was coming anyway, right? So. Well, I've never seen an Apple Pay sticker or sign really? of any mm. kind. No, it's a, one of the subway shops near near where I work has one. Subway. Yeah. I would never eat at Subway. Would you? Never. <laughs> Not when there's a Mister Sub like two oh, doors yeah, down. Oh no, yeah, I'm the same way. I, yeah. It's funny how that works, eh? Because okay. we had yeah, that's too yeah, much, let's not get too into much that. Canadiana. Too much Canadiana. Yeah. So, so we talked a little bit about this last week about in regards to WWDC. Uh, but there are some rumors that Apple is going to have some new functionality to make it easier to use Apple Pay with websites. And mm, yes. I'm really, I'm really hoping that we get a new, you know, AP kit or something like that. Right. That it's basically just a, a view controller that you can use that that you stick in your app and and uh, if you have Apple Pay on your phone, it just lets you buy stuff with your with your Apple Pay through an app. I think that mm. would be fantastic. Cross Isn't all there something like that already, like for well, iOS? Yeah, so you can use Apple Pay, but it's not it's not uh, it's not plug and play, and you have to have a connection with some bank to do it. Right, right. So, okay. for example, people there are people like um, Venmo uh, who support that in their app, but you're going through their payment system already. So, as an app developer, just an indie app developer, I have to work with some existing platform to do that. But why not just why can't Apple just do that? You know, in the same way they do an app purchase, right? Well, maybe they'll take a cut, which wouldn't be the best part, but uh, but still, <laughs> it, it, it would it would be kind of nice to be able to just uh, purely through Apple frameworks to be able to make a purchase on Apple Pay in your app. I think that would be great. I, I would definitely second that because I think the closest thing I have to that is PayPal. Yep. it's like the the fallback of like, well, I guess I'm going to log into PayPal to pay for this thing on this website, like yeah. some kind of animal. Yeah, it, it would be nice to just have it be able to look, just kick it out to, you know, whatever, kick it out to the operating system in that case, because you, you know you're on mobile, and just do it, right? I mean, how, how, it probably would make use of Safari View Controller somewhere underneath the covers to sure. transfer whatever information you need. Seems feasible. I yep. like it. Yep. Let's let's see that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's really no reason why not. Apple has all your credit card information already. So all the app needs to do is say, hey, Apple, uh, charge this amount. <laughs> Done. <laughs> right? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it should, you'd think it would be pretty simple for them to do. It'd be in their interest to do it, too. Yeah, it sure would, if they're taking a cut. Yep. Alrighty then. What's next? All right, President Bartlett. How about Mr. Swift 3 Preview 1 uh, released today as we record this on June 1st? Uh, this is the first preview release of the Swift 3 language made available from Apple that you can install as a developer into Xcode 7.3 as a separate tool chain. And this was something I was kind of looking into earlier this evening before we recorded. Uh, how, do you, how do you use a different Swift 
without getting a new X code because that seems to be how the only way you were able to get them. Uh, but Xcode 7 has support for different tool chains that you can toggle among, as it happens. Did not know that, but now I do. And the instructions for doing that are on the swift.org download page, which includes the release, like a binary release, of Swift 3 Release 1. Yes, there it is. You've got to scroll down a little bit on that page to get there. This will be in the show notes, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what it is is a tool chain file that is has everything you need in it. It's got the compiler, it has LLDB, and it's got all the symbols, um, uh, source kit stuff needed to do all the proper highlighting. And then you can go to, um, in the preferences, components and tool chains, and choose the the new tool chain to run Swift 3. And Ooh. then basically your Xcode 7.3 is running Swift 3. Of course, don't submit apps with it. <laughs> That would be bad. That would be super bad. So uh, this is a great way to try out the new stuff. And then in the news article that I've linked to here, it has this really great little part to it, a 9to5Mac, where it lists all the currently implemented proposals from Swift Evolution. Uh, And this is further down the page if you're looking at the article that's linked in the show notes. Uh, So it's got SE2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 16, 17, 19, 23, and on and on and on. There's a bunch all the way up to 94. All of these proposals on Swift Evolution that were accepted into the project and implemented now are part of Swift 3. And you can try them yourself with Preview 1 in your own Xcode without screwing everything up. So... If you have any interest at all, um, and even as a way to kind of get ahead of the curve and make sure that your app will run on Swift 3, like open up a Git branch for uh, Swift 3, download this tool chain and run it against your code base and start migrating over uh, is a thing that you might want to do. That is all. That's all I have to say about that. Really? Okay. No. Certainly nice that you can nope. see what's what's coming before just kind of being surprised at WWDC, like, oh, here's how all your Swift code is broken. You, you can know right now, like, this is how it's going to be broken. And uh, the only surprise is whether we're going to have migrators for, for most yeah, of these. Yeah, there's going to be a big migrate button there. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for a big migrate button. <laughs> I'm hoping for a refactor button. No, not refactor. What is it that's missing in Swift? Um, refactor is missing yeah, in Swift. Refactor, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Even Absolutely. to the, the meager level that Xcode barely supports for objective c mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. and uh the other thing that I've, i really miss with swift is uh the quick look stuff when you're debugging mm-hmm. um and if this is actually working for other people and hasn't been working for me all this time i'm gonna be really pissed but so let me know anyway um <laughs> but you know when you like select a view in the debugger and use the quick look button and it would render the view out to show you that just That's doesn't work for you in swift in swift never has worked same thing with colors or or strings um, or what have you. I would always just get preview not available. No, I go, believe it works. Dying a fire. Really? Yeah. yeah. Mark, Jaime, you, you, what do you say? Let me open up a Swift project while you're doing that. Yeah, I'm not doing okay. enough Swift. I'm not to, doing to enough to really Swift know. to know. Ah, yeah. okay. Yeah, because that stuff is like, and I don't even know why I still try it. I, I, even today, I was like, yeah, Did- what color is that? But the the uh, and the, the the preview debugger works for you, right? The preview. What do you call it? The um, oh, playground? It's one, yeah, it's one of the assistant. If you go to, hang on, I'm just got to close this open dialog box. If you go to, under the um, assistant menu, the thing that looks like two, like a, what do you call that? Uh, used to be the little guy with the suit on. Um, 
Yeah, spinning beach oh, ball. Oh, yes, yes, go. yes, yes. Yeah, it's the assistant view you're talking about. And now it's yeah, two circles overlapping, yes. Yeah, there's a preview. There's a preview of, like, if you had a, uh, a view, if you have, like, a nib or whatever open, you can, uh, or a storyboard, you can uh, click on the. Um, What's oh, and do the UI debugging thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That works fine. for you, but, but not the, the other yeah. one. Okay, hang on. Not the yeah. other one. Yeah. So if you so if you run your app in neither in the in the text editor uh, at the top as well as the debug window at the bottom in the variables view. That's right. In the variables okay. view, that's generally where I use it. But mm-hmm. yeah, like if you're in running and you and you stop at a breakpoint, you hover over a variable or something, and you can get kind of the same view, right? And that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that doesn't work either. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that's just been a, f- a feature of Swift <laughs> in Xcode yeah, 7.3. I'm sure for me. I'll just try it out. Uh, yeah, what? do, please do, because if it is just me, I'm going to be a very upset show host. Yeah, we're just going to step back for a few minutes while Aaron freaks out. Show me a table and I will flip it. Hmm. Okay, here's, so. a, here's a nice little Swift app I did for a tutorial for a certain website. Shall it remain nameless? Ding. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Shocker. I don't know why you would not even say the name. The fear of the ding. I heard a ding though. Somebody got I, in, somebody yeah. received mail. I'm gonna go with Mark. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably me. Okay, t- keep going. This is. I'll, I'll do a real time follow up. Okay. Okay. Um, I think. Yeah. I like I said. I'm done with that one. Um, we're, we're Jaime or Mark. Were you saying something about it? I can't remember. But Swift three preview one. All right. So, um, do you want to go on to too many managers, Jaime? Sure. So this is a, a blog post by um, Ben Sadowski. Um, ben Jammin. He's been jamming. Ben Jammin. And it, it's it's not too many managers in like the HR sort of way. It's really more talking about from a naming things and from an architectural perspective for your, your code. Like having manager somewhere in a class's name is a, a real big code smell. And he gives the example of like things that just sort of become these buckets for code to exist because it doesn't really exist in one spot or another. Uh, for example, he gives the the iOS example of uh, NS File Manager, which isn't really like a manager. It's really just a whole bunch of utility functions, right? Um, and he does kind of clarify that you know, it's not like a hard and fast rule where if you've got a manager somewhere, you, you've, you've blown it. And he even he sort of brings up the idea of you know, hey, even stuff is like CL Location Manager. Uh, maybe it could be named a little bit better, but it's not unreasonable. And so it, it really comes down to, like, how are you breaking things down, right? So naming being one of the hardest things in computer science, is, as they say, yeah. uh, amongst other things, depending who you ask. <laughs> uh, he talks about something like, well, instead of having, uh, what did he say, an was it Avatar Manager? Yeah avatar manager he's like well what are the things that it does and he talks about pulling out different chunks you know smaller concrete classes that do one single thing like uh, like a network api which could be kind of big in and of itself uh, an image validator an image converter and i could see some of that for you know other things like think about if you have some sort of login manager or auth manager which even then if you have differences between your authentication and your authorization um, and often you will, uh, it might be worth breaking those out, right? Having like an authenticator and an authorizer because those are two, you know, very distinctly different things. So I'll leave it out here to the, the panel on, you know, what, what are your thoughts there? Do you have a lot of managers? Like he mentions uh data manager, uh cache manager, login manager, 
these sorts of things. I've, I've certainly been guilty of, of naming classes uh, in this way. I like uh, having a manager. Uh, <laughs> I, I do too. I, I'm not sure you should feel guilty about it. I mean, for example, I commonly have something called the API manager, which really is a collection of, of all the API calls for, for a given uh, app just uh, abstracted away. So I don't have to ever call an endpoint from somewhere in the app outside of this API manager. Uh, and sometimes they're big, right? If there's a lot of endpoints to call, then it's a it's a big class. But so what? You know, how are you going to break down uh, thirty distinct API calls into something into smaller units? You, you kind of can't, right? Extensions uh, yet, to the rescue. <laughs> oh no, no, no not for this, not for this. No way, no way. Um, no, this is to abstract out the actual mechanics of the of the network call uh, and the URLs from anything else the app is doing which which I think is a is a good thing to do. Uh so so I think that's correct and if I want to call an API manager I'm going to call it an API manager sorry. <laughs> I don't think that smells bad at all. So strongly disagree with that. I but I get his point. Okay, I get his point. Uh you know it, you could have something like if I if I called it API manager and and I was doing all sorts of things like I don't know, building my requests in there as well. You know, and I have a different class to build the request. The API manager will call. But if I was just doing that with a method inside my API manager, okay, yeah, then it can get sort of bogged down, I suppose. I, I, get, I get his point. Um, but um, maybe don't feel as strongly as he does about it. The thing that I come from with this is everything in moderation, right? Like if if you are out to lunch and everything is a manager then okay i get that <laughs> but you know in practice i would have maybe one or two classes that have that name and they are generally you know they're generally singletons <laughs> in my my t- my cases um and so i don't i don't think they're a problem at all so you know if if there are developers that go nuts with this then okay then you got a problem and maybe you're conflating managers with model classes or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, I've, I, I've personally not seen this problem. So I'm kind of curious on, uh, something as kind of a little sidebar. So with the singleton aspect, what, what aspect is, uh, is a singleton? What, what do you mean by that? So is it like a, like in some sort of manager class, that's a singleton? Yeah. Yeah. You know, sort of in the same way that, um, you know, you treat NS File Manager as a singleton, right? The shared manager is that what it's called? Yeah, then it, it, it comes down to which is which is worse, uh, having a a singleton to uh, just hold a bunch of method calls, or to have you know, sort of Java style static methods uh, for where there, where you actually have these method calls as as class methods as opposed to instance methods. I tend to do. I tend to lean towards, and I know this is considered bad. I tend to lean towards the singleton and having a, a single instance, and them being instance methods as opposed to them being class methods. But I just I don't like the I don't like the whole uh, a class that holds nothing but class methods approach to doing to doing the same kind of thing. So singletons aren't bad. Yeah, I don't understand what the the. Uh, the hate on singletons is about you well know. it's hard to test from a tdd point of view that's that's why people don't like it because you can't if you have a singleton that exists from one in um 
from one uh, call to another call and, and is potentially holding state, then when you do your testing, you can't have a, a completely you can't completely isolate that test from the rest of the state of the system. Right. That's, that's what that's people don't true. like about it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think either either one of those cases make it a little bit hard to to test some things. I think the the class methods actually make it a whole lot less problematic to test than singletons do, uh, just because of the the magic nature and um, destroying singletons in between tests is kind of weird. You, you have to make some sort of compromise somewhere to to make that possible or make it easily doable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. Yeah, uh, but do you see anything wrong with say you have say you have this thing? We'll go back to the same API example. So you have some authentication, and you're storing the you have to store that authentication info somewhere so it's accessible to all these class methods. Well, where do you put that? You don't want to have to authenticate every single time you call this thing, so it has to exist somewhere. Where does it exist? So I, is, I keep it in the singleton. <laughs> <laughs> I just did that's, the same that's thing. That's what I do. Yeah. yeah. Just did the same thing myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something that that is is global to the app. So in some sense I I get it. I get the issue that this is in some sense a global variable and global variables are bad. Uh but you got to do something with it. You got to be practical. Well, what do you think, Jaime? Yeah, it, yeah it's, since you brought it up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it, you know, avoiding them where possible um you know, unless it's sort of a natural thing, like there can only be one of these, right? There's uh, UI application is a natural singleton because there can only be the one application object for what you're dealing with. Um, hardware-based things tend to also be this way where there's, you know, there's only one um, like Bluetooth interface. There's only one so on and so forth. Uh, these make a bit of sense. I think where it gets trickier is, is exactly the example you brought up where like what do you do with account information? Having a, what do you, so let me ask, what do you do when you have to support multiple accounts? Like, wh- how does that singleton structure that it it, it handles like in a, a collection of accounts of some sort? Sure, yeah. I mean, that's not something that I would generally do. Having multiple accounts for the same uh, service, you mean? You know, multiple accounts at the same website, or you know, you know, not a website necessarily, but the same. Uh, web service is that what you mean or well so let's take example like uh like a twitter app right where you can have Mm -hmm. multiple accounts that you can sign in as Mm -hmm. uh, and and you can kind of seamlessly switch between them so you might you know you might have i don't know you might have tried to post something from one account and then while that's occurring before the network has completed you're going to go and switch to some other account yeah and, yeah. And like, it, how, how do you deal with those boundary it's a, issues? It's a, it's a good. That's a good question. I mean, that's not something that I've had to do. Uh, although I have had to deal with multiple tenancies. Ten. Uh, ten. Uh, that's a hard word. Multiple tenancy, which which is you know the the ability to log out of an account, log back into an account uh, within an, within a single run of the app. Uh, so so yeah. I mean that, and that can cause issues when you have a lot of asynchronous stuff going on. You know what happens if the person changes accounts? Well, there's a long download going on in the background or something, and and it, it in a different account. And how do you handle all that? That's that's tricky. I I grant that's tricky. Um, what I've generally done in the past is is I, I keep one one version in the singleton, uh, and then just am real careful about 
about uh, making sure that that any calls that go out or come back in are consistent with that same you know some kind of user ID, which is the one that's that's in control right now. I haven't actually had to deal with the case of being logged in with two different accounts at once. I'll I'll, mm. I'll say that, yeah. I mean, if you did, then you probably wouldn't be using a singleton for your account right. object, right? Right. You know, like right. The, that's exactly the situation that that I'm in for when I just use that singleton. It's there's only ever going to be one user logged in at a time. It would be yeah. a very unusual thing for there to be multiple users on this system. So there, an account system makes sense. Uh, singleton makes sense. Mm-hmm. But but in theory, you could have a a set of valid accounts, right? As a as a collection, instead of just having. You know, your one user ID, you have oh, a set sure, yeah. of user IDs or an, or an array of user IDs and and have some kind of credentials uh, object associated with it. And you just pick out the one that you want at any given time. True. Oops. I, seem to have, I seem to have quit Safari with my notes, <laughs> um, as you do. Um, and Tim, uh, sorry, as we were sort of backlogging or sorry, what do you call that when you're backgrounding? I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, the real-time follow-up stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, going back to Swift and its lack of preview for, for debugging items, um, it appears that Tim thought we were talking about UI debugging, and yeah. I'm talking about variable debugging with Quick Look. So here, let me let me show you what, I, what I've managed to yeah, do. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Because uh, I wasn't sure that you, what you were talking about. Let's see if this so is... So you, you sent a screenshot of, a UI, of the UI debugger. Yeah, I sent you a new one here. Okay. And text storage. Oh, okay. Well, I am, so maybe, I am able to see the value, right? Is that what you're, you're asking about? Yes. You know what would be a great example, Tim, if you can do it in real time, is if you have a UI image somewhere right. and, yeah. and okay. have it pop up the actual image in sure. that, in that okay. hang, hang on one sec, see if I can find yeah. one. I think my button is a back, button background is an image. Um, so while he's doing that, uh, Jaime, if you want to continue with your, with your sure. next uh, one, because... That one I think is a lot less controversial. <laughs> uh, the let, delegates versus observers. If yeah, we're done let, with the too many managers, yeah. Let's see if we can. We can. So Benjamin Sandowski uh, also has a blog post about delegates versus observers and and kind of the the you know preference that he has for when to use one over the other. And there's even like a little sidebar among KVO, which is essentially KVO mm-hmm. equals no, um, yes. unless you're forced to with like AV Foundation or something, right? Um, and I, I'd have to say I, I agree with a lot of it. Where I I use a lot more of the delegate pattern or the delegation pattern than I do observers. So um, it, it is slightly painful to set up these um, you know these different protocols in Objective C compared to to Swift. Uh, I always feel like I have to have a code snippet to just do the the syntax because it, it's never like obvious to remember how to how to set it up. Um, or at least my brain doesn't, as opposed no, no, to just like right. the, the much it's more true. straightforward <laughs> protocol setup in, in Swift that I like. Yeah. Um, and, and I end up using that a whole lot more than NS Notification Center um, as the observer piece. Um, and that's not to say that like one is clearly like better than the other in all cases. Uh, I think when you want to know discrete information and have discrete, um, you know, wiring between things, the delegation works a whole lot better. Like, you know, uh, collection view, it might be an example, right? You have like the delegate, like this user tapped on this cell. Uh, it would be kind of weird to have a like, oh, user tapped cell notification and then try to figure out 
what exactly was was tapped based on the like the info property the dictionary that comes along with that um and, and he gives the example of like hey well if a you know if a photo was loaded you know is that um you know is that really like a notification thing eh, probably not that would get kind of weird now a product being updated might be reasonable to send a notification, right? You'd have a one-way relationship of, hey, anybody who's interested in product ID one two three four five, update yourself. And I've used that pattern before as well, where oh, uh, especially if you have a tabbed navigation scheme, you might be viewing the same product from multiple different ways, right? It might have been in your favorites list, it might have been on some home screen, might have been some search page, so on and and, and so forth. It's it's not as dirty that way. Right. It's just like, hey, some important state has changed. Go update yourself appropriately. Yeah, sometimes you're you're deep, deep, deep down into say a navigation stack and something changes and and something way up at the top needs to know about it. Uh and I'm sure everyone's been through this this path of oh having delegates all the way up, right? Or delegates all the way down, right? To to notify your your delegate that the thing changed and then that then your delegate has to notify its delegate that the thing changed and the thing notifies its delegate that it changed and, and just bouncing all the way up. In cases like that, sometimes it, it is convenient to use a an observer. Uh but other than that I hundred percent agree. I mean I, I almost never use observers anymore unless I unless I and by observers I don't mean KBO, I mean uh notification notifications and, and notification center. I almost never use those unless I have to. It's delegates just seems much more, much more clean to me. Uh, clean in the sense of, of correct, uh, not clean in the sense of less code. Cause it, no for sure it is, it is more code. Yeah. yeah. I think but, of it like when you said clean and I, I instantly understood what you meant by that from the yeah. sense of, I know exactly what the side effects of this are going to be. Right. Right. So like you implement the, the observer or sorry, <laughs> the opposite of what I was saying. If you <laughs> implement the protocol and, um, you've got the trigger on one side and you've got its effect on the other, and you know exactly where those are because you've written the code to make it happen. Whereas mm -hmm. an, a notification to notification center, uh, could hit anywhere and, <laughs> um, right. anyone that's any class anywhere that's chosen to implement, uh, to the, to observe that notification right. uh, is on the hook to do something. And uh, it can catch you unawares at some time. Yeah, the the order that it happens is is undetermined too. Right. That's that's potentially a dangerous thing. Although it shouldn't be, it's probably a problem with your code if it is. But uh, that's potentially something that can get you. Now it is true that if you if you have to announce this thing to you know ten different spots, then yeah, obviously you use a notification yeah. because you're not gonna you're not gonna have this tree of delegates going up. But but um, that's sort of an unusual situation, I would say. Yep. So yeah, not not very controversial. Yeah, no, not that one. So let, let's do the little sidebar again on uh, KVO then. Uh, yeah, because that that was like <laughs> the hotness at one point, right? I can't. Yeah. I swear everything was KVO'd. Yeah, yeah. What I what I don't like about KVO, and then this is now just venturing off into personal opinion, uh, is is that it's too hard to to know what effect something you're doing is going to have on something else. At least with a notification, you had to set up some kind of observer method somewhere, right? Which, which is observing that notification. And, and I know you still do that in KVO, but, but it just seems, it just feels wrong to me to just change something and have it instantly have some effect somewhere else without having that step of, okay, notify that this is going to happen. 
right? With a notification, yeah. you have to post that notification. So you change something and you you make it clear, I'm sending this out, or I call a delegate. I'm taking some action to make sure that somebody else knows about this. And with a, with an observer, just KVO observer, you don't do that. It just sort of happens automatically. And and that doesn't feel right to me. That feels dangerous to me. But it again, totally personal is. opinion. No, I don't, I don't think there's anything controversial in that opinion either. I mean, and the thing about uh, KVO is that it's there's like this one catch-all method that you use to handle the output from a an observed object, right? And sometimes the API, like the Cocoa API, forces you to use this model, right? Right. Like um, AV Foundation, right? Yeah. If you've yep. used AV Foundation and you have your handling of a media file being played back and you want to do different things depending on its play state, uh, you have to implement KVO and listen for particular properties and they're changing. Um, and it's all happening in one method. Um, I can't remember the name of it offhand. Maybe somebody here can. Yeah, it's, that, like, it's like did did respond to something or other. Yeah, but I know that something we're talking like about. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it, and that sucks. It just sucks, right? Um, yep. <laughs> it's the worst. Um, and so, yeah, I think maybe hopefully what happened is people kind of caught onto how lousy that was. <laughs> decided to, you know, we're, we're we're talking about protocols now, so that that is actually much more elegant. And it's funny, like thinking about my time writing in Swift, um, I haven't implemented KVO for anything, you know, mm-hmm, <laughs> ever mm-hmm. since I've yeah. gone to Swift. Yeah. yeah. And oh, real time follow up. Tim has been busily making screenshots <laughs> and showing that the uh, the debugger in his version of Xcode um, does quick look just fine. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go after this show and flip some tables and. So are you using the did set observer coming back to Swift? Are you using your your did set observers and that kind of stuff now instead of KVO and that kind of thing? Uh, typically, what we do is implement a protocol, right? So like right. We were, like I, you may have missed this from your screenshot frenzy mm-hmm. there, Tim. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, <laughs> listen, listen when you're editing the show. Yeah, I will. <laughs> yeah, the answer do. is sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. We'll yeah, I, I definitely find the the delegates pieces are a whole lot easier to debug, which Sandowski mentions as well, where there's really only two reasons why something didn't get called. It's, whoops, forgot to set the delegate, which is yep. nine times out of ten. Which is common. What happens? Yep. And the other one out of ten is, oh, this thing went out of scope too quick. I so was it just got about reclaimed. to say that one. Like, yep. there's only like two <laughs> failure options there. Um, with, with notifications, like notification center ones, You've had either mysterious ones happens because they're stringly typed, which I never really liked. So uh, session up- the worst. Yeah, session updated is guess what? Somebody else probably thought of that idea too. So you'd be better <laughs> off just mashing the keyboard uh, on some constant and then putting session updated so you can find it, uh, and, and that'll kind of help, right? So you you might miss one because somebody wasn't using the the predefined constant they were using. Like they just put in a magic string into their code, so you didn't get one or if you're running into namespacing collision type problems, you end up getting some that you didn't expect. And you're like, what the hell? How did this get called? Right. And, and, and KVO is kind of like even worse on that in that it, uh, it just sort of happens magically. And you're wondering what, what in the world happened here? And I was like, Oh, Oh, did, did somebody add a category to some, you know, key thing like UI view or view controller that you're wondering like, why the heck is this con- controller doing this thing? What, what, how does it know what happened? I think that's maybe like my biggest issue is a yeah. certainly there's issues with like the, the giant switch statement, which you get 
maybe mm. mitigate a little bit by you know having sub methods that are dealt with by subclasses or something or, or, or com, uh, composed classes. Uh, but just the I, I can't figure out where in the hell this thing is happening without stepping through a debugger and watching like oh that that's what's calling that right yeah. right yeah. He did mention in one of these two articles, one other gotcha is is if the, the combination of, of singletons and delegates for singletons is a potentially dangerous thing. Uh, because, and he specifically said a, a third-party library can, is, is almost definitely at some point going to come along and change your delegate on you for your, for your singleton. These are built-in singletons for, you know, from Apple. And then, and then screw up everything in the app. Uh, and, and, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's one of the re- well, one that's one reason I'm I'm less keen on on third party stuff. Uh, we're gonna yep. avoid it, but I'm also oh, less yeah, coming keen. over to the to the bright side. Then I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I'm also uh, less keen on swizzling, which was mm-hmm. super hot at some point in the Objective C right. world, and and, right. and there are still some diehards. And I'm, I'm not going to say that there doesn't that there aren't some reasons to do it, but I. I wouldn't be you know, completely sad if it was not possible to do crazy things. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of this stuff goes back to the, to the earlier days of the language when, when it was objective C was much more, I mean, it still is, but was much more of a, just a layer on top of C. And you had these things called NS objects that you had, you know, you had Casey, uh, case, is it KCL? Uh, yeah. KCL. Um, that, uh, that let you access properties of these objects, and you didn't necessarily define your object so much as 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 subclasses of NS object. Uh, you would just use the more of the the KCL type uh, methods, and and in the same way use KVO, and in the same way use swizzling because all this thing, all the stuff was was much more dynamic, uh, and and the the runtime was was much a, a much bigger part of objective c coding and i'm not sure when that change really happened maybe it was when objective c 2.0 came out that that it sort of took on this more structured style of language uh, i hesitate to use that word but uh maybe more formally uh, strict more formal strict yeah strict is a good yeah. word yeah 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 i think that i think that is right you know, with all this debate about static versus dynamic with Swift and comparing to Objective-C, that whole conversation, we've been seeing a lot of talk about that sort of thing. And I'm sure I've read something about that as well. Um, and ha- and that change that you're talking about happening around the time Objective-C 2 happened. Yeah, yeah. What's uh, what's KCL? I've never heard of that. Am I using the wrong word? I don't know. Uh, like, I, I don't recognize it, so... Um, oh. I, I'd hesitate to say that you're wrong. KVC. Sorry. I'm sorry. I just used the wrong okay. three-letter acronym. KVC. KVC. Gotcha. Sorry. Sorry. No problem. No problem. Uh, okay. Cool. Something Mark invented last week. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I'll tell you. This is this is kind of a funny thing uh, with me. I always get those abbreviations wrong because it goes back to my earlier life when I did circuit stuff. Sure. And there was these Kirchhoff voltage law and Kirchhoff current law, KVL and KCL. And in, in Objective C, there's KVO and KVC, right? Uh, and and uh, I always mix up the the acronyms. So understandable. Now you've seen it in real time, real time follow up. Okay. <laughs> yeah, key value coding is actually one of those like really weird and really cool kind of things where you can call like summation on some random object's property. Like take this NS array and some you know dot salary. 
out of this person object and you just tell it like that's the key path you want to go to and it kind of just does it that is true yeah. yep yeah my favorite use of that is is uh if you have an array of objects and you want to pick out just one property of each of those objects and make an array out of it you can use value for key on the array you know about this yeah you, mu- you must know about this mm. getting silence I'm, no i i said yeah uh, i'm totally <laughs> with you I'm yep. with you. I understand yep. that one. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm also enamored with with Tim as updating the notes, and like my, my eyes went right <laughs> through that. So I was having trouble keeping track of both. <laughs> That's how the sausage is made, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, there we go. So Tim, so for for people who can't see what we're talking about, this is uh, Objective C for Swift developers, a Udacity course. Looks like. Yeah, I mentioned. I think I mentioned uh, last week, but I I couldn't remember where I'd seen it. But there you go. I thought I saw a book on it, actually, like a PDF book published. But wait a second, Objective C for Swift? <laughs> yeah, what? The time <laughs> okay. has come oh, when people I must see. learn why take Objective this course? C. <laughs> Here, let me read the why take this course. Aren't you going to read to us? Oh no, no, I'm not. I'm just reading to myself. Um, I was really looking for the no, really. Why would you take this course? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I can see now what you will learn, uh, but. Okay, here, here's why. When you look out at the iOS landscape, you likely see that the number of engineers developing Swift is growing rapidly, yet many apps and third-party APIs are still written in Objective-C. This course is designed to help you prepare for that landscape. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Well, this, this kind of goes along with something we talked about a few weeks back, where uh, it's easy to confuse growth rates with absolute numbers. Right. Mm, yes. I would say for sure, no one's ever going to argue that the Swift growth rates aren't way, way higher than the Objective-C growth rates. Sure. But it's not clear that the number of users of Swift and the number of apps actually written in Swift is is uh, anywhere close to the number of users of Objective-C or of Swift. Or, uh, sorry, or number of apps written in Objective-C. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Absolutely. Alrighty. Let's go around the table like we usually do and see who has a pick of the week. And why don't we stop at the desk of Tim Mitra? Oh, let's stop at me last. Oh, come on. Seriously? No. Did you see what no, I put on nothing. there? Nothing. Nothing is serious. Oh, sorry. That was my POA. No, you don't have anything on here. No, actually, I meant to put POW. I put FU by mistake. Oh, okay. But no, I guess it's, 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 a top, uh, it's sort of a POW FU. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so POTW is pick of the week. POW is oh what, prisoner, prisoner, yeah, prisoner of war. Of war. <laughs> I never yeah. used the T. I, whatever. G- given I, what I the topic is going to be, prisoner of war is actually a little bit apt. Uh, LOL. Folks will find out. Tim, um, t- tell us about your shirts. All right. Well, so I just wanted to put to uh, make a comment about the follow up on the t-shirts. I don't know that. I think I cut it out of the last episode. We had a discussion after the show, but uh, just to let people know, the uh, if you've ordered uh, t-shirts through the European store, you you probably have gotten a shipment notice by now. And if you were unfortunate enough to place an order with the U.S. store, you probably got a cancellation order. So. I think when I mentioned the t-shirts on the first time about three, four weeks ago, I said there's a t-shirt shop just down the street from me, like literally like a five minute walk. Um, so I contacted them and we we're going to get a bunch of t-shirts printed. And so we we put a call out on Twitter that if you had ordered one, let us know and we'll we'll try and get it replaced or get you get you what you want, what you wanted and send it out to you. Um, so we've, I've basically placed an order for a bunch of shirts and, uh, we're going to get them printed. I know that one of them is going to try, going to be at WWDC. So that's a, a good sign. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're having the shirts printed up and we're going to have some, um, I think some, uh, reasons to 
uh, earn a shirt, if you will, over the over the coming years and uh, or coming years, coming months and uh, like that. So I just want to let sure, people know. Yeah, it's well, a slow sure. roll, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, like I said, once I, once I get you know in the role of uh, of. Uh, Dealing with this, I mean, Jaime asked me, you know, one of the reasons we went to Teespring was because we would be able to, they would print them and they would take care of distributing them and collecting the money. Um, and Carol has volunteered to take care of shipping them out to people. So that removes sort of the hassle factor of, of getting them out to people. So uh, if you're interested in a shirt, let us know and uh, we'll try to make one available to you. Cool. All right. That was my pick of the week. All right. Now what? Oh, let's go to Jaime. I mean, yes. for his multiple picks. Yes, I, I have two of them. So pick un is uh, NS Cash. Um, it's, it's pick un, un by the un, way. Un, it's un, masculine. Un. Un. Yeah, right, right. Um, so yeah, I linked to the uh, NS Hipster article from, what, 2012, looks like. Yeah. And uh, NS Cash is one of those things that uh, I think even right now people may be wondering what the hell is it. And it, it might as well just be called, like, make your app fast object <laughs> ns make your app fast yeah it, it might as well be yeah. like but yeah. it's got some caveats in, in that it has like some some weird behaviors and like you, you're putting a, a lot of magic in your app that you won't necessarily understand or at least i don't um so ns cache is uh it's a cache i mean it it does sort of what it says in its name right you, you give it things and it hangs on to them and it evicts them when it's getting under memory pressures uh for example um, so that's that's great. It, it it sort of works nicely out of the box. Um, I happen to use it for images that were expensive to like hang around. So yep. um, you know, taking images and then oh, I need to do some expensive processing on them, and I really don't want to have to do that processing time and time again, right? Like yes, I am doing it on a on a background thread, but I want this to be buttery smooth as you are sort of going through. In this case, a collection view. It worked out really well. I mean, it, it's sort of like a nice replacement as mentioned here in the article from NS Hipster for whatever you might be doing for NS mutable dictionary, right? You might have to like, you know, implement your own eviction policies and, and all sorts of other things. This sort of handles that for you. And uh, I've not run it through like instruments, but it seemed to handle itself quite nicely. It made everything a whole lot better than it was before. Uh, unfortunately, it has probably the worst documentation possible uh, when you try to do anything other than like, what a dictionary would do for you or a mutable dictionary degree, right? You, um, and it's mentioned here in the NS hipster article of like set object for key. That's pretty straightforward, right? Here's um, the identifier for this image in my case. And then here's the actual image itself as the value. Totally easy. Great. But then it also has this like hand wavy, like set object for key with some associated costs. You're like, oh, what does that cost? And the cost is just just read the article. It cost is just like <laughs> hand wavy. Like it's. Uh, I'm going to read it real quickly. The cost value is used to compute a sum encompassing the costs of all the objects in the cache. When memory is limited, or when the total cost of the cache eclipses the maximum allowed total cost, the cache could could begin an eviction process to remove some of its elements. Uh, sure, that, that that didn't tell me like what it is, it, but the eviction is not guaranteed in any order. Uh, if you try to manipulate bad things might happen. Uh, calculating the cost might be a waste of time is essentially what the docs are saying. It's like, why do you even have this method? Like, this feels like yeah. it was somebody's, you know, private Apple API that like for reasons had to be made publicly accessible, but they didn't, they kind of begrudgingly did so. In any case, it works really well. Again, uh, it, 
using it just sort of out of the box of, you know, allocate this cash, you know, hang on to it somewhere in your app, start shoving things into it, start reading things from it. If it's not in there, go do the expensive processing, shove it back into the cash, right? Always reading from the cash first where you can to try right. to get yep. performance yep. Uh, benefit. So yeah, I use it as, as well for, for kind of a similar reason as, as you, I think, for storing lots of images that you might need to have around. And uh, it, it just it works great just out of the box, as you said. And, and it used to be I used to try to do it with a with a dictionary and you know, if you had if you had a real power user who just has tons and tons and tons of images, inevitably you're gonna get a memory warning and if you're not careful it's gonna crash your app. Well, with NSCast, that just goes away. <laughs> the memory warning comes, and without you doing anything, it just ev- starts evicting things and keeps on going. It's great, hmm. right? But isn't that similar? To, it's similar to what to what um, like NSURL session does with uh, when you set a cache um, level or feature, uh, parameter and you're requesting something from a network too. Must use maybe NS cache under the hood or something like that, right? Like if you're caching it, objects, it probably does. It probably does. Yeah, uh, but. That of course is only for network calls. Right. Yeah. Uh, this is if you if you're if you're manipulating images, they can be even be images from your camera roll or stuff. Oh, you I see. Draw right, on yeah. yourself, and it's expensive to redo all that. Uh, you know, if you're cropping and rotating or whatever stuff that's right. you know potentially expensive, uh, you can stick the the final result in the cache. And oh, I see. Not yeah. have to do that every time. Hmm. Yeah, I ended up using it. Um, in my collection view case, mm-hmm. uh, the actually in, for an iPhone 5C and the iPhone 6 Plus, um, it actually would be sort of unnecessary. Um, you really can't tell as a user that anything was was needed for for this case until you got to a rather rather large collection view. Um, but the iPhone 4S running iOS 9 was rather pokey and just it was terrible. It was mm-hmm. just, the user experience would have been completely awful so i said okay well uh, i probably should have started with an ns cache to begin with but it was easy enough to plug in there right the the lookup code just you know instead of generating something every time says great you know look for it not there generate it shove it in the cache deal with it Mm -hmm. you've got a second pick i do pick do is uh jazzy so jazzy is a an apple doc like generator for documentation so in my case, I have to generate documentation that will be handed off to others. And many years ago, maybe three or four years ago, uh, the open source project Apple Doc was the hotness, right? It produces something very similar, like, like Java Doc. It would generate, I think, doc sets as well as HTML um, files that, you know, they looked pretty. You could see the structure of your, uh, your API, your SDK, um, your library, whatever the case may be. Even your app, I guess, if you wanted to go that route. And uh, I've been out of that game for a while, and more recently, professionally, it's kind of necessary to get back into it. And I started looking around, and um, I'd evaluated Apple Doc just because I, you know, used it before. And unfortunately, it seems like the maintainer of that is sort of running out of time. Or <laughs> that, that sounds really dark. Uh, that <laughs> person's uh, very limited on time. Uh, I don't think they're ill or anything. Just to not worry people at home um they're busy they're very busy right and they're like right, hey they're right. looking for maintainers and it looks like it you know development understandably had slowed down on it and i i'd look even further to see okay well what are the alternatives and uh the folks at realm the um the database folks the superhumans at realm yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've uh, they produced what I believe started as a Swift uh, documentation generator, and they've updated it in the past couple months to handle Objective C as well. And it's mm. it's pretty easy to use right out of the box. Um, it's got uh, so it's worth noting that it's a um, a Ruby gem that you install, right? You sudo gem install Jazzy, and you run it from the command line from your your project, and it'll do uh, pretty sensible things right out of the box. But you can also give it command line flags, or if you do like I do, I prefer to create a jazzy YAML file that has all the configs I want, like who is the author, where is the URL for the author, uh, copyright statements, um, which theme do I want to use? So by, by default, they use an Apple theme that makes it look like you know the theme set that you're going to see looking at Apple's documentation in uh, Xcode. Um, it also can do some funny things like give you the percentage of your code that is documented hmm. and you can set um, like an access control list of, in my case, I only want to document the publicly accessible headers and not the, you know, privately uh, accessible bits. And uh, it, again, it was really easy to use. It seems like it's been, you know, relatively well-maintained, uh, continue to be maintained. So I, I just preferred that in my case. And when I saw that, you know, it was being done by realm and I found examples of, I think Artsy is using it, if I'm not mistaken, and for sure Stripe, because I was looking at their YAML file to kind of get ideas for what I should do for my own documentation. Hmm. And so, so how does it, how do you actually use it? You plug it into, is an extension in, in Xcode or? I, I guess you could, I guess you could do that if, if you really wanted to, like have like a post build processing type thing. In, in my case, it's going to be rather infrequent to generate the documentation. I think getting into some sort of continuous integration scheme where, right. you know, it runs the command line Xcode build. Um, I might create like a specific target for that. Uh, just say, Hey, like when I want to generate this, generate the latest and greatest. You know, okay. Like so it's so similar. We talked about a, um, um, an Alcatraz extension a couple, six months ago that does a similar thing where it actually inserts the doc, the header documentation into the actual code. If you remember that. Do you remember yes, that? funny, funny you should mention that. So that was uh, VV Documenter, right? Yeah, which I actually, I actually did use because I don't feel like typing out all those, yeah, like you know, slash star 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 slash at param at c. I kind of want to just write my code and then mm-hmm. let that f- create like a template for me, and then I can just put in the oh, this is, you know, this is what that dictionary input is. This is right. what that delegate is intended to be, or how it's supposed to be used. Mm-hmm. That that's the one that will show up. Uh, sort of nicely and cleanly in your inside um, the code, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in in your little help panel, right on the the right hand side. I forget what it's called, like help editor, right. Um, this will produce something that you can hand off to somebody else, right? I, I guess you could have it, you know, like on your GitHub page or uh, as well, part so of your Google We use Confluence at work. This this could go. We, a lot of times we have to document what we're doing. We have to do a, a SRS, they call it, um, where we basically do the requirements document for what we're building. Um, and I could see using this kind of thing cause it would take some of the pain out of formatting, I, I guess. That's what I'm no, asking. No, no, no. This, this is like, you know, like Apple's API documentation. No, no, I understand. I, I see that okay. it plugs into dash or whatever, but you know, a little copy and paste and it goes into Confluence, but you know what I mean? Cause we, we, we write up similar documents to this in our documentation, in our API, which nobody ever writes anything into. Yeah. I could see it being used for that because it does generate the two art main artifacts, the the HTML files with CSS and other in JavaScript. So it's, it's yeah. almost like a little mini static website that you could, sure. you know, have as a, a, an asset in something like Confluence. 
Um, it also generates a doc set, which um, pseudo pick here. I'm going to repick um, dash as something that people should use because sure. <laughs> back, back in the day when I was using Apple Doc, you could install third party doc sets into Xcode. This is probably oh, Xcode right. 4. Right. And I, I haven't actually needed to do that in a very long time. And I went to go try to do that in Xcode 7 and said, hmm, what am I doing wrong? I'm like, am I an idiot? Where I thought this is where the doc set stuff was. And I did some searching and found some evidence. I don't know if it's true or not, but it looks like as of Xcode 5, you can't install third-party doc sets into hmm. Xcode. People correct me on, you know, if I'm wrong, hit us back on, on Twitter uh, at MTJC underscore podcast or ask MTJC, hashtag ask MTJC, uh, or even just, like, you know, uh, let us know in the street or something if you see us because I couldn't find any way. So I said, great, what am I going to do to test this out? Oh, well, Dash, I, duh, obviously I can install that as a doc set and it works great in Dash. Love it. It works just like you would expect it to do. And you've got the link for that in the show notes. One can be added. I think it was, I might've been your pick, Aaron, like oh, yeah, many, sure. many moons ago. Okay. Can I do my pick now? You're running the picks, man. Have a way. I'm doing my pick. So this week we had an announcement from Joel Spolsky. Um, these guys are the people that develop Trello and Fog mm. Creek software is named the company and uh, Fog Creek, Fog Bugs is their uh, sort of flagship product, the um, bug tracking software. So this week they've announced a new product called HyperDev, and it's basically a super fast web development tool that allows you to build a website or a web application instantly. And so what I've linked to here is a link to the article from Joel Spolsky talking about what HyperDev is and how it works. But um, and, and it's interesting, like if you're at all into web development, uh, that's very cool. And uh, you might find this interesting. But what I really find appealing about this is the approach that they took to building a tool to allow you to build web apps. And what they've done is stripped out all the setup and all the configuration such that when you click on the link and you go to the HyperDev application, it instantly creates a running instance of a web app for you. And it's live the moment that you visit the page. You get a unique URL, you can pub which you can hand out and people can visit right away. You haven't done anything. And it's already got a, a live web app there for you. Instant web application development. Um, right now, it is only JavaScript-based web apps because it's running Node.js. So... Uh, but they are planning to add other uh, languages. So you could presumably develop Ruby on Rails, for example, uh, or maybe maybe just Sinatra, who knows. But uh, the point here is that they've stripped away everything that would get in the way of just writing the code to show your application. And I think if you're a software developer, uh, there's a lot of, think of deep thinking that you could put in to following the approach that Fog Creek has done in building HyperDev. Um, so I really recommend you read this article because he does an excellent job of going through what you don't do <laughs> when you're building a web application. Um, and I think if you're, if you're a software developer, this is kind of a radical approach because it takes away all of the complications and leaves you basically with nothing but the actual development of the application. And so it's certainly worth taking a look at and getting a sense of what 
what you don't have to do if you get really crazy about it. So uh, check it out uh, on this link in the um, the actual application HyperDev is HyperDev.com. So pretty straightforward, easy to remember. Uh, and as, again, as soon as you go there, it creates a new application for you. And it's an IDE, basically. So uh, check it out and give it a shot. So this is up in, hosted up in the cloud, like this temporary site? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, of course. Of course. And then what do you do when you want to take that and put it on a site somewhere? I think um, the article says that you can export this to a node container that you oh, can I then see. host on right. your own server. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly in the meantime. And, and the other thing is that you can have multiple developers working on this at the same time. Hmm. Um, you know, with all the, you know, <laughs> concomitant uh, risk of, you know, people stomping on each other. Uh, but you know, people talk and get along. Never happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, this is kind of an experiment and I think it's a super interesting experiment. So, uh, definitely worth checking out for a lot of people who, who, you know, and, and although this is, again, it's, it's web development, but for reals, I mean, any software developer I think could learn from, from this, this application. So check it out. Okay. Doke. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a wild idea because, um, and I, I hope we get this into the show notes. It's a, a Dos Equis man meme. So for folks oh, who yes. don't remember, there was like the, the Dos Equis brand of beer had a, a, a suave older gentleman who would say like, I don't The most interesting drink beer. man in the world. Yes. Thank you. Uh, that guy, you know, he says, I, I don't always drink beer. Well, when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. And there's a whole bunch of memes. And the one that comes to mind here is like, I don't always test my code, but when I do, I do it in production. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of the, the fun way of, of taking this in uh, but but more seriously i'm like oh that's actually really cool because it reduces that iteration cycle right um having done web development many moons ago i, I definitely love the fact like oh you want to test something great just keep hitting refresh in the browser when you change a file and even later when firebug for mozilla firefox and the chrome inspector came along you could just sort of change things live and mm-hmm. fix your CSS, fix your JavaScript, do all sorts of things, but having to like rerun an entire scenario. Um, and it, to be fair, the, the iOS simulator is, is actually pretty fast. Like it's you know, lightning fast compared to anything you might've done on, on Android for the most part, uh, other than the instant run they added to the studio recently. Um, but it, you can never get sort of like fast enough, right? It's like, oh, obviously I found the bug. I just want to change it right here and now. Or if I'm developing something fresh, I just want to see it right here and now. I don't want to, as they mentioned in the article, I don't want to have to push something into Git. I don't want to even commit locally. I just want to just want to see it happen, right? Let the computer figure out, like you know, oh, I made a mistake here. Let me go undo something. Uh, I, I look at it akin to being like, uh, like the like the Notes app, right on on the Mac, where I really don't worry about saving. Obviously, it saves it. Right? It just sort of seamlessly saves it to iCloud in the background, and so my machine falls into a river or mm-hmm. you know gets crushed in an earthquake or something. Oh, I, I know the information's there, and yet I still have the ability to say, "Oh, I'm actually saving a version of this." So having sort of a you know let the computer do what it, it's really good at of just like maintaining this information and also letting the user say, "This is actually a legitimate revision. I actually care about this sort of thing." So I really like this idea from a get things off the ground i'm curious to see how it works for you know as teams scale up because they do rightfully mention that like it can be sort of chaos if you're not 
careful. It's kind of like if you've ever had multiple people editing a single Google Doc at once. It can be really great because it happens really fast, or it can go into utter chaos when somebody like moves something around and you're wondering where the hell it went. Mm, too true. Cool. Coolio. Our work here is done, Tim. It is. It is done. So that's it for the week. So Aaron, if people want to find you on the interwebs, wherever they look. Go to Twitter at Aaron Vey. And Jaime, if people want to find you on the interwebs, wherever they find you. Also on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair. And Mark? Email at markr at spapsoft.com. All right. And once again, my name is Tim Mitra. I am T-I-M-O-A-T-R-A on Twitter. And uh, that's about it. You can catch us on the mtjc.fm website and more information coming up in the outro. And that's it for the week. And we'll say goodbye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hey, if you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. Hey, if you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you could also write a review on iTunes, that would be amazing. And if you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button now. I'll wait. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. The podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. And if you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thank you so much for listening. Love you guys. Um, so last week we did talk about uh, Android's auto layout, and and I know that they they actually had you know that somebody mentioned on Twitter that they had relative layout because they had you know horizontal and vertical layouts. Did you see anything about the new auto layout features in Google I/O? Yeah, th- this was funny because all of the Android developers were like, "Wait, isn't constraint based layout the thing that I hear the iOS developers complaining about? Yeah, why is this a good thing?" Yeah, um, and I I've, I think I've maybe said they're getting before, Swift. But- yeah, sorry. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I saw a, a, a demo um, through some website. I'll have to, I, I tweeted about this uh, somewhat recently. Did you? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll have to find it. Um, but it looks to me like as if it makes even more sense than what I am used to doing in Interface Builder. So I'll caveat that by saying, like, I think that uh, stack views went a long way, especially in Interface Builder, towards making it much more similar to what Android's right. relative yes. layout yes. scheme is, right? Yep. yep. Um, the thing I liked about what I saw in the little demo for the constraint-based piece, yeah. um, and the reason for it, having to talk to some Android developers uh, who admittedly, like, they have not tried it out themselves. They're just going off of what, what they saw at Google I.O. And, and how they interpret it, where there are some layouts that are kind of awkward to make in a just you know, vertical stack, horizontal stack, vertical stack, horizontal stack, where you might want to have things distributed out uh, somewhat asymmetrically, for example, or, or somewhat more than just like a, a grid, mm-hmm. right? Cause it's almost like you're going back to web development and creating like a, a table view or a, a table thing where everything is a TR or a TD sort of thing. And you just end up in pain. The, the thing I definitely liked about the constraint layout based editor in Android studio is that it, it looked more like a 
a live preview panel and a here's what the blueprint and it looks right, literally yeah. like a blueprint underneath and it's got uh, little circles that are kind of like um, Microsoft Visio where if you've ever had to you know connect a diagram and say connect this line to this line when I move around things in this process flow chart or architecture diagram or something and so it's nice you just like you know oh I want the right edge of this box to be pinned to the right edge of its container great right. drag from the little circle over to the other little circle and you can see the thing sort of move live. Yeah. Like I, I get where interface builders coming from with the, Oh, this is where the alignment constraint is. And this is where it's, it's off because the, the little orange thing is telling me that I need to update frames. Yeah. But I actually kind of liked the, the scheme of like just dragging and dropping and pinning things around and seeing, you know, sort of real time, what was going to happen instead of what's happened to me sometimes where I, I mess up a constraint and like, where the hell did the thing go? Did it go off the screen? Great. Let me just yeah. keep hitting, you know, undo until I see it come back. Yeah, you mess up one constraint and then everything else somehow is is completely off. Yeah. It screws up all the constraints or everything else, even though they don't seem to be connected at all. Have you ever had this happen to you? Yeah, yeah. And I think the reason that it uh, is sort of like this on the Android side is I, I think by default they tend to, I, I, I don't know for sure, and Android devs are probably shaking their fist at me if they hear this part, but I think the default is to match your parent. Like, I don't know if that's mm. by practice or if their layout scheme says, oh, if you don't define something, I'm just going to stretch to fill the contents. Well, let me, uh, let me ask you a question. So, so does, do the Android people on your team, do they use these tools in uh, uh, Android Studio? The reason I ask is because the guys I asked at our place, they, don't, they all still write their, their UI in code, you know, which is sort of the, the way they've been doing it for a long time, right? On the Android side? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's some mixture. Um, there's some things that are, I think a little bit easier to do programmatically, just like, right, yeah. you know, there's some things easier to do programmatically in, in iOS, but I think the, the XML based layout is just so much easier to read. Right. It's, it's comprehensible. Unlike the pseudo, I mean, it, oh, it is XML have, yeah, for yeah, interface yeah, builder, yeah. but yeah. it's got all sorts of like only interface builder itself understands what that stuff is. Sure. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we have to dig into that when 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 we get to commits that, that collide, you know. But uh, we have to go into the the uh, pseudo or the XML and kind of figure out what what went wrong and you know back things out. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely times. Every time I look at that that Android XML stuff, and granted, it's been a long time since I've looked at it. It just reminds me of the the bad old days of having to do Qt or WX programming on on uh, on Unix mm-hmm. on, Sol- on Solaris stuff. I, I don't know if maybe I'm dating myself a little bit there, but but that was I mean that was before these uh, these visual editors existed, and and uh, in fact there were attempts to make visual editors that would sit on top of all that stuff right uh, and they but they were never all that good they never worked all that well so you always did end up doing it by hand and it was a big pain i'd never understood why anyone would want to do that if they had something like interface builder yeah but how did you like interface builder when it was 3.0 and xcode 3 like that's where i started with interface builder and it was a bit weird how did you... yeah it was never weird no you just you just were uh, i remember i, remember I was a newbie things. You were no, you were just resistant to it because someone had told you it was bad. No, no, it's not. It's not that. No, it's I. What I could, I could never, I couldn't, couldn't grok the the, uh, the relationship between a, a interface builder being a separate app from Xcode. Yeah, the the whole uh, wiring stuff, wiring up properties to things in interface builder when you first look at it is kind of a weird thing, yeah. right? Yeah, especially if you're if you're new uh, to 
to this kind of thing. But uh, I don't know. To me, it was it, it was always like a breath of a breath of fresh air after doing mm-hmm. all command line. But you know, it's funny. I'm looking at at this uh, the link you sent out, Jaime, about uh, about the Android constraints, and it kind of looks like there's would they springs and struts in there, isn't right. it? Yeah, it looks similar-ish. Um, when I look at the the GIFs, I don't know what some of these represent. I, I assume there's there's equivalence to um, hugging and yeah. uh, compression based pieces, and I think that's probably what some of this is is representing. Yeah, but but you're right. I do like the sort of the real time. You know, you move something and it kind of shows instantly how how things are impacted. And things kind of move around. I, I do like that. It'll probably be just as confusing as Autolay it was to us at first. But it, but it is kind of neat how uh, it seems like you can set up rules for how things like tuck underneath each other and relate to each other on ed- left edges or whatever. And so this is actually I stole this link from uh, Jaime's tweet actually. Oh. While he was talking, I went and got it. Yeah, I found the link to my my tweet as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, I, I don't know. I, I think Interface Builder could do some of these if it just changed uh, some of the default things that it does. Like, it already does some defaults as it is, right? Like, when you hit the little magic, you know, add missing constraints or suggested constraints. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think they could do some of this. I run into one situation where I couldn't figure out why the... Um, I was like, okay, why is this not fully constrained? This is a label, so it has an intrinsic size in both dimensions. And I've pinned it to one side and to the top, I think. Like, what the heck? What is it complaining about? Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things where I just, like, got to go through and debug it sort of by trying a couple of things until I say, oh, that's what it was. It was, like, a priority that was messed up by something else. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's some weird things, too. And I don't know, it's kind of buggy in, in stack views because um, I did a bunch of tutorials recently and I was trying to show people how to use stack views. And... Um, um, as I was preparing for the video, you know, yeah, I set up a, a bunch of things in uh, like a vertical or horizontal layout and, you know, put some constraints outside the stack view. And then I got like a little yellow warning. And if I went into the went in to look at it, all it wanted me to do is, was nudge something up one point or, or down one point and it would silence that warning. But it still didn't break the app with the warning in there. And then, of course, when I went to shoot the video and I, and I went through the steps in, in, the, in the live demo, it didn't do that to me with exactly the same setup. Mm. So it's just kind of weird. But I, I love uh, um, Sam Davies on the Ray Wonderwick team. He calls, he calls them angry red constraints, and the other ones are just... It, so, you know, when you get the red, it's, it's angry at you, right? So If, if it's yellow, it's just a suggestion. Yeah. So, so here's one that I still haven't figured out a solution to. Say you have a table view. Yeah. And you're trying to make a universal app. So it's you're using a size class to handle right. uh the the table view on on the iPhone versus the versus the iPad and you want a different cell height on the iPhone and the iPad. Mm-hmm. So let's say the cell height is, you know, 60 on the iPhone but you want it to be 180 on the iPad or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So you go in and you set the uh, you get the you set the cell height on the table view, and these aren't resizing. You don't you don't need them to be resizing table views. But actually, even even if you did, uh, you set the cell height in the in the in the any any. You set it to the iPhone version, let's say, and then you switch over to the to the regular height, and then you say, okay, now I want to change the height for 
the uh, for the iPad, and okay, you change the constraint. You change the constraint on the cell. Sure, that works great. But then it gives you an error because the table view itself only has one entry for its height. Yeah, yeah. And you can't change it between size classes. So one of the hmm. size classes always gives you an error. It works great in, in real life. No issue in, in real life. It's only for display purposes in IB. And it, and unfortunately, you have this. You're stuck with this error that you can't seem to do it. Get rid of uh, in your, you know, in your um, in code. Yeah, in, in your code. Well, in, in, in interface builder, on your, on your code. So hmm. if you figure out a way to get around that, I'd be interested in hearing that. I mean, it's purely just a, uh, just a, a, a oh, visual. So we, yeah. So before we had auto layout, we would set the height, and then we would t- detect for the device. And this is way, this right? is purely because in size classes. You want to when you change size classes, you want to see on the screen. You want to see the different heights. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a you have a two different constraints on the cell. That works fine. You have the cell height constraint to one thing, and mm-hmm. the cell height constraint to the other thing, in the different size classes, and two different constraints for the two different size classes. But because the table view object doesn't have size classes, there's just one. I mean, it, it does for that, but not for not for row height. So you, there's no one value you can set that makes Interface Builder not complain in one of the two different size classes, as far as I can tell. Hmm. Like I said, when you run the app, it works fine. No problem. It's just Interface Builder showing this annoying error when you go to one or the other of the size classes, and you can't seem to get rid of it. Yeah, I think that might be a bug in Interface Builder itself. Yeah, I think uh, so. I've had one come up, uh, not Interface Builder, but uh, in Xcode, where... Um, I'm formatting some sort of string, and I think is it an NS integer? It might be an NS integer that I'm formatting in, and it will complain to and forth between. Oh, that should be percent D. No, no, no. Today that should be percent LD. I'm like, for the love of God, I don't remember which <laughs> and, one it's and you set to it be. to whichever one it says to do, yeah. and it's okay. And then you go to a different view controller, and then go back, and it flips it. It wants the other one. Yeah, right. Wow. So it shows the warning again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah, I've I've had exactly that. Yeah.